Welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 44, The Chapman Ripper Theory, with R. Michael Gordon. I'm Jonathan Mangus, and joining the show today is R. Michael Gordon from Long Beach, California, author of Alias Jack the Ripper, The Thames Torso Murders of Victorian London, The American Murders of Jack the Ripper, and his latest book, The Poison Murders of Jack the Ripper. Joining him today is Steve Metesky from the American Literary Association. And joining us as panelists are David Gates from Lawrence, Kansas, Gareth Williams from Neath, Wales, and Ben Home from Penshurst, Kent, in the UK. Severino Klasowski, also known as George Chapman, the Borough Poisoner, was a Polish immigrant who was executed in Great Britain in 1903 for the poisoning death of Maud Marsh, a woman he had hired as a barmaid, who he later took as his wife. Also, in similar circumstances, he murdered by poison at least two other women prior to Ms. March, Mary Spink in 1897 and Bessie Taylor in 1901. The case of the Borough Poisoner was highly publicized at the time, and his suspect candidacy for the crimes of Jack the Ripper was first suggested in the press upon his arrest in 1903. In an article in the Pall Mall Gazette on March 24, 1903, Frederick Aberlein, the chief detective during the Whitechapel murder investigation, was asked about this possibility that George Chapman and Jack the Ripper were one and the same. Aberlein is reported to have stated, quote, There are a score of things which make one believe that Chapman is the man, and you must understand that we have never believed all those stories about Jack the Ripper being dead, or that he was a lunatic, or anything of the kind. For instance, the date of his arrival in England coincides with the beginning of the series of murders in Whitechapel. There is a coincidence also in the fact that the murders ceased in London when Chapman went to America, while similar murders began to be perpetrated in America after he landed there. The fact that he studied medicine and surgery in Russia before he came here is well established, and it is curious to note that the first series of murders was the work of an expert surgeon, while the recent poisoning cases were proved to be done by a man with more than an elementary knowledge of medicine. The story told by Chapman's wife of the attempt to murder her with a long knife while in America is not to be ignored, but something else with regard to America is still more remarkable. He went on to say in an interview a few days later that if Chapman was the Ripper, he was working by commission, organ harvesting for an American doctor. Many elements of Aberlein's theory on George Chapman, the date of his arrival in London coinciding with the Ripper murders, the murders ceasing when he went to America, and then similar crimes committed in the U.S., have been explored in the books of R. Michael Gordon. And so we'll be discussing these points, many of them considered debatable by students of the case, as well as other aspects about the likelihood of George Chapman being Jack the Ripper. R. Michael Gordon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Good evening. Uh, I'll first ask you the uh, standard question special guests are asked. What led to your interest in the Whitechapel murders? Well, first, I think the uh, movements, the personalities and skills uh, of the individual. uh, When I began to read up on the Ripper case and Kozowski, I found that there was absolutely nothing really that knocks him off the page, which is what I was trying to do when I was doing my research. So I think the aspects of time and space come into play. Uh, Being a geographer, you look at mapping out data and plotting movements and changes in time and space, and I'll be darned if Kowalski just turns up just about everywhere, right place, right time. So it was not a single data point. I think think it was the entire full set. And basically, the more I learned about this serial killer, the firmer my belief was that he was indeed Jack the Ripper. But I must say, certainly, if a real solid fact came that was found that could remove him from the list, I wouldn't be too disappointed. Because the bottom line is, I really like to know who this guy was. 
Now, initially, when you first uh, started studying the Whitechapel murders, was uh, George Chapman the suspect that you first latched onto, or what was it specifically about about him that drew you to believe that he was Jack the Ripper? Uh, he wasn't the first suspect. Uh, of course, there's a whole list, and as you go through them, like I said, they fall off the page. I think uh, the fact that he was everywhere that he would have to have been to have been the killer, uh, close to all the victims, uh, the timing seemed to be right, certainly the skills appeared to be right. And, of course, you have to deal now, which we didn't have when I was originally uh, doing a lot of the reading and everybody else was doing a lot of the reading, you have the fact that the composite sketch is very close to him. In fact, uh, your casebook file mentions that as well. And the fact that uh, now the geographical analysis puts uh, the killer basically where I think he was living, in the George Yard dwellings. Uh, when do you believe that George Chapman arrived in London? You suggest in your books that he was responsible for the first torso victim found at Rainham in May of 1887. Yet eyewitness testimony indicates that Klosowski was very new to the country in August of 1888. Uh, What is your opinion on on this? Well, that's a two-part question. I'll get the first one first. Uh, I was looking at my notes the other day, and uh, my best guess from uh, from when he pays his dues in Warsaw in February 1887 and his uh, first job in late uh, 1887 would be around March to June 1887. I think with a refined date of maybe the end of May 1887. Now we have to remember he spent five months with the Raidens in the popular East End, a couple of miles from East End of London, or a couple of miles from Whitechapel, late 1887 to early 1888. And of course, you also mentioned the Rhino murder, which was May of 1887. So I think he was probably available for that murder. So my best guess would be about the end of May 1887, as far as arriving in the area. Okay. Um, now you had mentioned the Raidens. Ethel Radin, according to some published information, stated that she had hosted a, uh, a party for him um, in order for him to meet other Poles living in London. And she suggests that this occurred on the night that Martha Tabram was murdered, the 7th of August, 1888. And she describes Chapman as um, being new to London at this party. So there is some conflicting that, – that comes, comes from a press report um, in, a, in an interview. So there are some conflicting um, accounts as to how new he was actually in the, in, in the country um, at the time of the Whitechapel murders. Right. Um I don't think that uh, Kozelski's uh, newness is really a point. I mean, having read about his history and personality, I really just think the opposite. He was a supremely confident serial killer in new areas and new, situa- uh, new situations. If anything, when he arrived in the East End, he was ready to go. Now, as for the general question of likelihood, I don't think that really plays a part for either person long-lived or new to the area as far as killing anyone. I mean, anybody can just take a knife to someone. We also need to remember that the murders began only after he arrived in the East End. So one does not need, I think, to be in the area too long, generally become familiar with the area. He was known, of course, for walking around the area long nights. So I wouldn't dismiss him or any suspect, really, based on how short period of time or long period of time they were in the area. I think that might be just a little bit of a red herring. Uh, as for Mrs. Raiden, uh, that's an interesting uh, comment there. Uh, I hadn't heard that before. But I would say that we are probably having her interviewed years later. And uh, you know, memories being what they are, yeah, we can probably take it either way on that one. Right. It was uh, years later. This was an article by Norman Hastings, originally published in Thompson's Weekly News on the 21st of June, 1930. Really? Yes. Um, and and, and interv- uh, interviewing Ethel Radin. One of the 
uh, you know, great legacies, if you like, of the Chapman case is is that, or, or Kozowski, uh, is that um, they found a number of papers on his on his possession after his arrest, right. uh, uh, which, amongst other th- other things, you know, detail his um, uh, his brief biography, um, give us some idea of his movements whilst he was in Poland, and um, you know, the extent of his medical training. Uh, which we may come on to a bit later, uh, but also amongst that bundle of documents was a, a passport that had been granted to him uh, on the 13th of November, uh, I tell you, it was the 24th of November, 1886, uh, and that passport was valid until the 13th of November, 1887. Um, now, that doesn't actually say when he left Poland, of course, but um, he, he did have a valid passport on him, um, which he kept. Uh, which would have given him uh, passage out of Poland um, right up until the end of 1887. I was just wondering whether, uh, Gordon, you had any um, views on that, whether it sheds any light on your on your, um, your May 1887 date for his arrival in London. Yeah, this is uh, this is Michael. Yeah, it, it really did, because when I saw that uh, time frame, it kind of gave you a package of time that he could have moved out of Poland, like you said. So and that's a very good observation. Um, it really does say that if he was using laws, which you know we know that he didn't particularly pay attention to them, but if he was using a passport to move around, that would be a viable point. He could not have arrived uh, later than that if we're talking about a real passport and real movement. So yeah, I did. I did take a look at that. I think I mentioned that also in one of the books, and I agree with you. Yes, that that would have been a time frame. Well, it's another interesting thing. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Michael. At the time. Um I seem to, to have read somewhere, but I wish I could remember my source, that it was actually cheaper to travel from uh, continental Europe to America and back again than it was to travel to, to, to London direct. So I just wonder whether he'd uh, taken a detour via New York in the first instance before he landed in London. But that's, you know, that's just a kind of an idle observation on my part. That would be interesting to see his name on another ship's manifest. That would be very interesting. He did mention yeah, was there before. I think all our efforts are kind of focused on, on you know, when he landed in London, and uh, it's quite possible that, like another, uh, you know, a number of other immigrants, he might have taken a somewhat circuitous route before he got there. Well, I kind of took a circuitous route to come to America myself, so I understand that. <laughs> David, were you going to say something? Well, I was just wondering, isn't that passport... Uh for transportation in and out of Poland or through Poland specifically. It may not be that we're looking at a document uh, that was generated for uh, external travel. That's a good question. Indeed. So, I- yeah, but bear in mind the Kingdom of Poland then would, would have encompassed parts of what we know, know as Russia and uh, Germany today. So, you know... Uh, wondering if it, sorry, excuse me. I was wondering if anybody in the group knows if that passport still exists and we have access to it. I do not. It may well exist. I have tried in the National Archives in uh, in London to get hold of all this stuff, but they sent me back a quote for £580. <laughs> Good grief. So I might have to head on down there uh, you know, and, uh, and do some photocopying. But uh, there, there, are, there is a large file held in the National Archive in London uh, which contains all the papers, um, or seems to contain all the papers, from uh, from the Klozowski case. That's, is that in the queue? Yeah, I'll let you know. Right. Now, you had mentioned that George Chapman resided in George Yard buildings upon his arrival um, in the UK. But isn't it true that prior to his operating the White Hart Pub in um, at the corner of George Yard and Whitechapel High Street, he um, 
he resided at 126 Cable Street. Possibly during the Martha Tabram murder, he was actually working for Radine at the West India Dock Roads, residing in Cable Street um, rather than the George Yard buildings. I know there's some question as to um, whether George Chapman had ever really resided in George Yard as opposed to just operating the pub on the corner. Right, that's the, this is uh, Michael, that was the White Hart Pub, correct? Correct. Right. Uh, this is a very good question, and it's one that needs to be well debated. I think first it must be said that the Ripper murders and possibly the pre-Ripper uh, stabbing attacks did not begin until Kozalski was in the east end of London, and also the murders ended uh, when he's known to left the area in April 1891. And I think one of the things we need to look at are the police sources and the newspaper reports taken from the police sources. Now, there's a vague one, as I recall. Uh, I've got some notes here uh, from Sergeant Benjamin Charles. He wrote a book called Lost London. I'm sure everybody's familiar with that. And the quote is, Chapman lived in a white chapel where he carried on a hairdresser's business and sort of dive under a public house at the corner of George Yard and Whitechapel Street. And I believe they're referring to his 1890 on that. But I don't think that the 1890 date precludes him being there earlier. I think since he was a traveling barber or a floating barber, I guess I've heard you know, two different ways of saying it. Uh, he could have been there several times. But the two areas I really looked at as far as being him living in the George Yard dwelling, the first one, I think, is Detective Arthur Neal. And Neal, of course, investigated Kozowski Chapman for his 1903 murder trial. While he was waiting, uh, writing his 1932 memoirs, he quoted, Kozowski got a job at the barber shop in High Street, Whitechapel. He is right on the scene of the atrocities during the whole period. And the second one I'm looking at, uh, to put it down, is the Daily Chronicle report, which is March 23, 1903. And the quote in the paper is, the police have found that at the time of the first two murders, Kozowski was undoubtedly occupying a lodging in George Yard, Whitechapel. I think it has been signif- uh, sufficiently shown by officers familiar with the serial killer and the case that Kozowski is right in the middle of the Ripper's killing ground, and really no post-period writer, myself included, can really honestly remove him from the George Yard dwellings during at least the first two Ripper murders, and no one can remove him from the east end of London during the entire series. So I think Detective Neal's investigation shows clearly that Kozowski had daily access to really each and every victim in the series. Now, I think the other thing that people are looking at as far as putting uh, our, our man Chapman in uh, 126 Cable Street is the uh, 1889 Kelly's Office Directory of London. I'm sure everybody's familiar with that one. And that actually puts him there um, in 1889. Now, if these directories are anything like the ones they do these days, uh, you put the directory together at the end of the year for the next year. So I would say just personally... And this is just a gut feeling. I don't have any data on it. But my gut feeling would be that they produced that uh, document late in 1888 for use in 1889. So really, when you look at it, the Raidens put him in popular East End from 1887 to the early 1888. The police and uh, reports put him in Whitechapel, 1888, in uh, George Yard dwellings. And the Kelly's directory, late 1888 to 1889. I think it was... Ob- Hi, uh, Michael. I think it was observed yeah. by uh, Wolf uh, Levishon in his testimony, uh, certainly as recounted by Hargrave, a- uh, Hargrave Adam. Indeed. That, uh, he, he only worked there, I believe, in 1888, but uh, there was some suggestion that he was living in Greenfield Street, uh, which is uh, also in Whitechapel, just a stone's throw away, and uh, is also a suggested residence for um, uh, another suspect, Aaron Kosminski. Uh, is right. there any other... Is there any additional data on that, uh, the suggestion that he wasn't so much living there but only working there um, uh, in those early days? 
other than the police reports uh, stated, and of course, Abilene's uh, notation that he lived there, um, that's all we have at the moment that I've been able to find. And you're right, that he was on Commercial Road, he was on Green Street, he was all over the place. So we've got a guy running all over the place from spot to spot. So as far as uh, living in the building, personally, I think he was there because, I, I, like I said, I can't take him away from there as a writer. Uh, but as uh, an individual who's reading the area, he's bouncing all over the east end of London, uh, but he's bouncing around in Whitechapel, Spitalfields, St. George, and East, so he's near the victims wherever you find him. Right. Just to, uh, to add one more little bit into the, that this mix is that when his son died in 1890, he was recorded to have been born at 89 High Street, Whitechapel. The address of the White Hart Pub. So um, I don't I don't know if this suggests that that, that, that like he would later live uh, in residences above um, the the public house and and maybe this could have been his address as opposed to being in George Yard buildings. I, I think there's a very telling connection here, um, and that is uh, Abraham uh, Radin, uh, his former employer. Because in the 1891 census, uh, Abraham Radin, who's then listed as a hairdresser, is found living in Brunswick buildings in Goulston Street, which was almost uh, uh, literally around the corner from the White Hart Pub along uh, Whitechapel Road. So uh, it seems to me that that Kozowski and um, Radin's careers were fairly tightly bound together in the early years. Um, in fact, uh, Kozowski later goes to work in Tottenham in North London for Mr. Adin, uh, who I'm almost convinced is Mr. Radin, using the, um, the, the correct sort of um, uh, ethnic pronunciation, if you like, of that name. Um, so I, I get this feeling that maybe uh, Abraham Radin, I mean, we pronounce it Radin, but that's an anglicised version of it, uh, was kind of putting up uh, a lot of immigrant barbers at the time, and that some sometime between uh, 1888 and 1891, uh, Abraham Radin himself locates to somewhere around the corner from the White Hart pub, and he's still listed as a hairdresser then. So I, I, I think it kind of points in the direction that it was closer to the 1890-1891 uh, timeline that Kozowski himself um you know, started working in, in, in that shop. Uh, this is borne out as well by uh, the testimony of uh, various relatives by marriage of Kozowski, his brother-in-law, uh, Stanislav Spadeski, um, <coughs> says at his trial in uh, 1902 uh, that he first met the accused 13 years ago, um, and, and which would have been about 1889, if not late 1888. And at that time, Kozowski kept a barber shop in Cable Street. This is from Stanislav Podersky's um, um, inquest testimony, uh, sorry, trial testimony. Uh, he then tells of Kozowski marrying his sister uh, in October 1889. Um, so <clears throat> it seems that the 1889 date for um, the Cable Street shop is fairly well established in the witness testimony. And then Badersky goes on to say that uh, Kozowski later um, uh, occupied a barber shop and a public house. And at that time, his brother-in-law was living in Greenfield Street and uh, he'd had a son. So the chronology seems to be Cable Street first, White Hart later. Um, That's just my reading of the evidence. Yeah, this is Michael. I agree that uh, he was probably at uh, 123, say, uh, 126 Cable Street at about the end of 1888 and uh, later on at the White House. I think you're correct on that. Yeah. 
Interestingly, Michael, um, if you look in the Times, um, I'll supply the date later because I can't remember it off the top of my head, there's there's an advert for the, the post office directory that appears in uh, December um, 1888, uh, where it says that the new post office directory is, is, is just hitting the presses on the 14th of December. Ah, and that, okay. Uh, yeah, and that they were taking uh, entries, because they prided themselves on, on how current they were, they were taking entries right up until 13th of December, 1888. So at yeah, the very yeah. latest, um, Kozowski would have registered his Cable Street address by the 13th of December. But yeah. we don't have any yeah, receipts. Yeah. <laughs> right. That uh, that really does make a, a good deal of sense as, as far as being an individual in business and trying to get the most up-to-date material out to your possible customers. Uh, late 1888 really does make sense. I'd like to get a copy of that uh, directory if you have one handy. I, I can send you the newspaper. No, I've, I've looked everywhere. They're, they're like hen's teeth. You can't find them. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's There's a nice little ripper touch, actually, in the same advertisement where, where the Kelly di- or the post office directory boasts of uh, it being so up-to-date that it's, it's, it's got uh, the hot news of James Monroe succeeding Sir Charles Warren as head of Metropolitan Police. So <laughs> That's, it's, uh, good. That's very good. Now let's let's discuss um, the murder of Martha Tabram. Whether he resided in George Yard buildings or not, you have an interesting theory behind her death. Can you can you kind of explain to our listeners what what that is? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, this, I believe, is really a unique murder in the series. Uh, not, obviously, not for the victim. But I think when you look at the murder objectively and don't try to sort of force it into some kind of a box, you do see, at least I do. Uh, a composite of events, or two separate events divided by some period of time. Uh, I think we see two weapons used on the victim. We have a right-handed attack, a left-handed attack, and we see a victim in what appears to be two different positions. I think we also see two different crime scenes. But as far as for explanation, I'm beginning at, say, 3.30 in the morning. We have George Crow, the gentleman who worked hard. He's returning to his rooms. He spots what he thinks is a homeless person, sleeping on the first floor landing, which unfortunately at the time was not unusual for the East End, so he pretty much ignores it. But he did not see uh, an unusual body position, and he did not slip in a pool of blood. He just went to his rooms. And uh, I think the doctor's report makes Tabram dead by this time at about 2.30 a.m. So he's looking at a dead body. And my personal feelings is if he would have noticed there was a person there anyway, he certainly would have noticed a very strange body position. Then we move on to the second portion of it, about an hour and 15 minutes later, it's about 4.45 a.m. Um, John Sanders Reeves, uh, the uh, gentleman, leaves his rooms to go to work. Now, he sees the body, uh, apparently it's a little better, better lighting, slips in a pool of blood. He's shocked. He goes and finds the officer. The body has the clothes pushed up, exposing the lower half. Uh, two things are noted. If you look at the photograph of Martha Tabram, she has Clint's, well, not in the photograph, she has Clint's fist, though, Clint's hands in the report, and very neatly combed hair. So there was no struggle. She was killed very fast. So my guess is that the blow to the heart did it. I think the bottom line is, my theory at least, uh, Jack came across the body, used his knife on her body, and I think he found her dead. Now, unfortunately, the clothes would have told us a great deal about that. So I think this was the death that showed the killer the longer blade knife was the way to go. My question for the group is, does anybody recall reading a clothing report? Is there anyone out there who knows that there's some clothing uh, that was discussed or noted about on Martha Tabor? Because I, I haven't heard any reports on the clothing. That would have told us a great deal of when the wounds, if, they've, if you had one wound to the heart with a large knife, maybe four or five from a pen knife, and she's not moving, he may have gone and taken the, taken the clothes up then, and then you'd know when the tax was occurring. 
Yeah. Just out of interest, uh, Michael, um, if, you, if, if Jack the Ripper found Martha Tabram dead, does that mean right. you feel that the soldiers got to her first, or was she, did she die for some other reason, sort of uh, in some ail, ailment, perhaps? No, I, I do. I do think that the report that a, that a soldier was possibly the murderer is pretty uh, pretty viable at this point. Because again, you have two different hands, you have two different weapons, two different angles. So I think she probably was murdered uh, by a soldier for being a prostitute or whatever reason, and just left there. Um, I think Jack, uh, if he was involved, and in I think he was, basically came across a woman he thought he could use, and she was already dead. And maybe that's the reason why he put so many wounds in because he was an angry person at that point. It's, it's interesting you should mention an ailment there, actually, Ben, uh, because uh, one often overlooked feature about uh, Martha Tabram is that she was said to suffer from fits uh, when she'd uh, consumed alcohol. Oh, that's um, right. Uh, and indeed that Dr. Colleen had found an effusion of blood between her scalp and her cranium, um, which might suggest that she, she could have had a fit um, and, and knocked herself out. That's right, and it, and it was observed that the heart was rather fatty. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not Indeed. sure what the physiological implications are of yeah. that, but uh, yeah, she, she might like uh, like Chapman. She may have, uh, you know, she may have been on on, on death's door anyway. Um, it sounds like yeah. a lot of them were at the time, considering the illnesses that were going around the east end of London at that point. A fatty heart is not necessarily a lethal, you know, a lethal thing in and of itself. Diagnostically, uh, people that suffer from alcoholism, for example, have fatty hearts and it's a result of metabolism more than anything else it's a result of behaviors and it's not in and of itself deadly right okay, okay. gotcha um let's talk about some other other uh, victims uh here you um what are your views on um elizabeth strides murder right you have written that that you believe that she was possibly killed by mistake mistaking for elizabeth long and and you also connect Elizabeth Long to Annie Chapman. Can you kind of uh, uh, explain to us your theory behind uh, what role Elizabeth Long played in this? Uh, this is a very interesting question because I think it goes really to the mind of the killer. Um, the killer was aware of a possible witness, uh, that of course being Elizabeth Long, and he was keeping track of it as many serial killers do. Then we may have viewed Long, I think, as a potential threat. You know, a description of a man uh, is one thing, but pointing him out in a court of law is quite another. Now, having said that, and knowing that uh, Jack was at the very least familiar with some of the local prostitutes, he may very well have known one nicknamed Long Liz, and I think Long Liz is pretty close to Elizabeth Long. And he may not have known Strite's real name, but a tall, blonde uh, woman would have been hard to miss in the east end of London. Uh, she did live on Florendine Street near a barbershop, I might add. So, you know, he could very well have even done up her hair. And if uh, her or any one of the victims knew him as their hairdresser, they probably would have gone out with him on a foggy street. Uh, as to the murder, we see what appears to be a simple murder, if that can be called a simple murder, with really no possibility of any body parts being removed. So I think she was targeted because the killer thought she knew something. Uh, after her murder, he went on the hunt, of course, for his real kill of the day. And if memory serves, as I recall, she turned down one or two possible clients in order to meet someone near Dutsfield Yard. So she had a, a meeting. So she seems to have known her killer, and it may have led to her death. Does anyone um, want to make a comment about that? Uh, well, uh, certainly I, I, I agree wholeheartedly that uh, serial, serial killers will often keep appraised of uh, investigative progress. 
Right. Uh, it's quite an interesting coincidence, isn't it? Liz Long and Long Liz. Uh, you know, it's uh, you know, what are what are the odds of that? <laughs> you know, so to me, you know, really, it's quite striking that 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 is that close. And like I say, if you're going to make a mistake, that might have been a mistake he made. Now, is there any actual evidence that Elizabeth Long was a prostitute? Um, I don't recall reading anything that positively stated that Mrs. Long was a prostitute. Uh, she certainly could have been uh, been one, and she probably was familiar with them in the a- neighborhood. And in that, she may have known Annie Chapman. She was, of course, still living with her husband. I would not be surprised, though. She may have been a casual prostitute. But again, I don't recall uh, that giving as her occupation. I don't know if anyone in the group remembers that, but I really don't recall Mrs. Long being stated as being a prostitute. I mean, I forget what her occupation was. I mean, uh, quite often, if, if someone is referred to as a laundress or a seamstress. Seamstress, that's, right. That's very often a euphemism for prostitution, but uh, that's not always the case. Um, and I think uh, Liz Long was married. Again, that, that needn't uh, mean anything. But uh, Right. Uh, but like, I said, like you're, you're saying, I, I never really gotten any information that she said specifically police reports saying that she was ever arrested for prostitution. That's, right. that's you know possibility, of course. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was thinking uh, one of the questions that was submitted is do you believe Elizabeth Long knew Annie Chapman? And to be honest with you, I don't really know. I think that she could have known her as a passing acquaintance, though. But that would not have necessarily uh, been necessary for her to remember the woman she saw with the uh, shabby, genteel gentleman in front of 29 Hanbury Street. So I think I don't think that's necessary for a positive identification. Okay. The problem was that she lived in Church Street, I think, which was in the, if you like, the northern part of uh, of town. Whereas you know, so far we've only really located uh, Krasovsky down in Poplar, or possibly St George's East by this time. So. Um, you know, at least um, at least Elizabeth Stride uh, had the ability to speak Yiddish, so she might have been able to have struck up a friendship with uh, a, a recent immigrant from Poland. But I doubt very much whether Elizabeth Long would have uh, fared so well. Right, and uh, we have uh, comments that he did speak Yiddish. He spoke uh, Polish, I guess, a little bit of Russian and some German too, so he was quite versed in that. He would have been easily uh, talking to Elizabeth Stride. That's a yeah. question I wanted to bring up, actually, Michael. I mean, how likely is it, do you feel, that Klosowski was able to communicate in English in 1888? Going back to Wolf Levishan's testimony, he mentioned that he spoke a mixture of Polish and Yiddish when they first became acquainted. Um, but right. On a much later occasion, uh, in 1895, I believe, uh, they caught up with each other in Tottenham High Road. Uh, and, uh, by that stage, Klosowski was speaking English, according to Levishan. Uh, Given that the whole speaking English thing wasn't mentioned when they first met, uh, the inference to me would seem to be that Klosowski's grasp of English in those early days was pretty much uh, slim to non-existent. I mean, that would be my take on it. Yeah, uh, you could very well be correct. I mean, uh, he doesn't necessarily need to have much of an English uh, uh, background to be speaking in order to pick up a prostitute, I would imagine. And, of course, we have to remember he did have a barber shop, so he was speaking to people on a daily basis, so he did have conversation. He was able to make himself understood, in other words. So as, as far as saying a few words, you know, will you, et cetera, et cetera, I wouldn't imagine there's going to be any difficult whatsoever picking up a prostitute at the east end of London, no matter what language you, you spoke. And as for doing business, well, like I said, he was a barber, and he did do business in the area, and he was comfortable enough with that. And we've got to remember he was very quick at picking things up, and he was very quick on change. So here's a guy who can maneuver very quickly. So I wouldn't discount him. Or really, I wouldn't discount any suspects uh, just because of a language barrier. We can do hand signs if we need to. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I was thinking mainly of the, uh, some of the eyewitness descriptions, perhaps. Uh, you know, Joseph Lavender and, and Liz Long. I mean, it, it right. might hint at some possible, you know, conversational uh, dialogue, but it, it needn't uh, be so necessarily. 
Uh, right. One thing I wondered is, uh, did he stick to his own... Is it likely that he stuck to his own sort of social, uh, ethnic milieu in, in those early days? I mean, did, did, did Poles literally sort of the cut, cut hair of other Poles, or was it sort of, did they sort of integrate? Because uh, I've, I've heard various things. I mean, I, I heard, you know, they did integrate, uh, they didn't. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm not quite sure on that point. Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure if anybody has a definitive statement on that, but the bottom line is if you're talking about an area of the world at the time, uh, London is, is the, the world's capital, if you will. Uh, the east end of London has a mixed bag that you could not believe these days, I would assume. People going in, people going out. So I think the possibility of sticking to your own kind in that area would be absolutely impossible. I mean, you could try, but considering that you're looking at a business, anybody's going to walk in the door. Uh, he's walking around all of the, the area, all of the east end area at nights. I, I don't think that uh, that, that really uh, puts a damper on anything as far as movements. I mean, he could maneuver around, he could communicate, he could do what he needed to do to get the job done. I, th- I think, Michael, one thing we do know, you know, from previous cases um, at, at, at the time, um, you know, the famous uh, Lipsky case of 1887, uh, right. where, where, that there were two... Um, uh, key witnesses uh, in that case, Rosenblum and Schmuss, uh, who were both recent immigrants to the East End, and they sort of hung around the Batty Street area, um, not far from Cable Street, not far from uh, from um, from Tuckfields Yard, for that matter. Um, but uh, you know, these guys have been in, in England for 18 months and could spe- barely speak any English at all, uh, and I, I suspect that was because once these these Polish emigres arrived in, in London, they tended to sort of huddle together with uh, with people they felt comfortable with. And certainly in Kozowski's case, we find him in 1889 uh, wooing uh, Lucy Bedersky uh, by attending a Polish club in uh, in St. John's Square, which is just about the other side of the city of London from, uh, from St. George's East. So he certainly seems to have hung around sort of Polish clubs and married a Polish woman. Uh, there doesn't seem to be too much uh, sort of diversification at this stage in his his linguistic career, anyway. But that's just an observation. Right. That that's a good point. I think we have two things we have to look at at this point. First of all, uh, he was trying to hide. I don't I don't think anybody would discount that fact. And hiding in in one of the worst ghettos in in the world at the time uh, would be a good place to hide. Uh, you might or might not want to be among your own kind because uh, if you're lo- being searched for, that might be the best place to look for you. I think we're also I need to remember one thing: considering the entire series of possible Ripper murders or Whitechapel murders, uh, one or two of them could have been killed by someone else. So if the witness spots an individual who's not necessarily uh, a Polish or is speaking reasonably decent English, that may be one of the other murders that he didn't do. Uh, elaborate a little bit on that. Who who do you think um, do you have um, George Chapman committing the Thames Torso murders, as well as the Jack the Ripper murders, and then a series of murders in the United States? Which ones out of this uh, the canonical five do you believe may not have been murdered by Jack the Ripper? Personally speaking, uh, the canonical five I would also include uh, Tabram. I would say that the the killer probably got all six of them. I think the only the only possible uh, uh, debate would be the Stride murder, and I think, uh, I think like I said, I think she was a hit. Um, other than that one, uh, the rest of them seem to be pretty much uh, on all fours. I think. Although he wouldn't have fit the all of the witness descriptions. Uh, granted, they neither none of them really tally too very closely with one another, but. Um, because he, he doesn't fit um, any of the witness descriptions, as opposed to maybe um, 
Astrakhan man. Right. Um, there are there are two areas you can look at. First of all, any suspect now uh, for the Ripper murders must contend with a Scotland Yard composite that is now, I guess, part of the official Ripper file. So we have that as far as any description of the killer fitting any particular person. I think second of all, I was talking to my agent, uh, Steve, the other day, and we were talking about this earlier. Um, since this individual was a barber, he had access to a considerable amount of hair. Now, did he make a wig? Did he make a mustache? Did he change his appearance? Here's a guy trying to hide and trying to get away with murder. Uh, that may be a way to take care of that. But again, the bottom line is, Scotland Yard now has a computer composite based on the actual descriptions of the killer, the witnesses they are very confident with. Therefore, if you're a suspect and you want to put a man in there, he must be part of that composite and that part of the file. You know, uh, Steve here, I'd like to interject. I'm a, uh, uh, what we've got here is, uh, as we begin to discuss this, uh, I was having a very, very difficult time with the different hair colors, the height, and that kind of thing. And uh, it, it didn't occur to me until I talked with Gordon regarding the fact that this was a barber. He had access to hair colors. He had access to unlimited hair. He could uh, literally make up a mustache uh, in wax and hair and, and put this thing on, and all of a sudden this whole thing began to click. And then when you look at these murders and you realize that they're always within walking distance of a barber shop, uh, it began to really f- gel together for me. Now, you're referring to the photo e-fit that was put together uh, a, f- a couple years ago. And, yes. And the, uh, the documentary, Jack the Ripper, the first serial killer revealed, was released, um, in which um, it also uh, had a lot to do with geographic profiling and stuff, modern investigative techniques. Not any contemporary to 1888 um, uh, composite that the, that the police uh, came up with. I just wanted to clarify that point. Yes. I was also reading the descriptions. There were some of the descriptions that were talking about, well, the man was around 5'6", five, 5'7", five, at one point, I think 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five. Some said light-haired, some said dark-haired, and I was having a very difficult uh, time with all that until I realized, uh, and, and this was in discussions with Gordon, uh, that he was running a, a barber shop, and he, he would be coloring hair on a regular basis, and a disguise would be no problem for him at all. Change hair color, that kind of thing. Does anyone have any uh, comment on that? That anyone w- wants to make? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd just be intrigued to know, you know, why he was so keen on disguising himself. He, if he was such a, a, a an arrivist, you know, he'd only just arrived in town. Who was going to recognize him? Um, that that um, might lead to uh, future planning, though. If you think you might be uh, spotted, you might want to be able to change yourself just in case. I mean, he was a supremely confident serial killer, but. He might have been smart enough to say, well, maybe I should change my clothes a little bit. Maybe I should change my hairstyle. Okay. And that's just a per- I don't have anything other than the fact that it's a little gut feeling, if you will. I do want to address the Thames Torso murders in that um, it seems to be a, – a, and we'll talk about the change of MO because that, that's one of the hottest topics when it comes to George Chapman, as you know. But, but first, let's touch on the Thames Torso murders in that there's um, been recent evidence – uncovered by researcher Deborah Arif, who joined us on a prior podcast um, specifically about the torso murders, that that some of the torso murders show signs of being maybe a botched abortion, and especially in the case of Elizabeth Jackson when she was found plugged, quote-unquote, with a piece of cloth inserted to her, which leads Arif to suggest that this could have been an herbal abortificant um, 
and and that therefore the Elizabeth Jackson murder was the result of a botched abortion. How do you th- believe that that tallies into uh, uh, George Chapman being the murderer in in those cases? Um, actually, we spoke a little earlier about this, and I I do believe that's a distinct possibility because you have, I think personally, having looked at those cases, I think a different reason, a different motive for those killings. And if you look at uh, the background of Chapman, you have an individual who is uh, a trained surgeon, whether or not we, we believe that he had any particular skills as far as modern uh, science. He was trained in the, in the uh, skills of surgery. And he could very well have done his own little abortion clinic in Poland, and maybe that's why he ran. I don't know. But as far as the torso data is concerned, and the, the Reinhem, Whitehall, Elizabeth Jackson, etc., those cases, uh, I have no problem believing at all that these are all abort, uh, botched abortions, at least two or three of them. I would not be surprised whatsoever. Okay, and and, um, and you uh, just said to elaborate on what you just said about uh, the reason he left Poland. Now, you also suggest in your books that he could have been uh, it could have been possible that he was uh, dodging the draft because he did file for an extension um, and then left uh, shortly before, uh, or according to your theory, left shortly before his uh, number would have been called up for the Polish draft. Um, what? You're just kind of speculating here. Do, would you think? Would you put more weight behind um, the possibility that he would have been fleeing um, some crime in Poland, or or um, or the other alternative that maybe he immigrated in order to avoid the draft, or for any number of reasons, you know, the immigrants uh, left Poland to come to London just to make a better life for themselves. What what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the uh, the possibility of being drafted, he was not a particularly interested in doing that since he did sort of dodge it, if you will. I think that might have been in his background. But uh, personally, uh, when he paid his February 1887 uh, uh, bill, I guess, for his surgery, uh, he, did, he ran, and he never looked back. So I have to think personally that he did some kind of crime. Was it a botched abortion? Was it a murder? Uh, I'd like to know how his mother died. That would be a very interesting thing to look up. Uh, but I think he he committed some kind of a crime that he knew he was going to be nailed, and he just ran. If you're going to get, talk about the uh, tens torso murders, if you've got a second here, sure. Um, one of the reasons I looked at those murders is that there really is a loose connection as far as his movements. We already talked about the Rhino murder in May of 1887. Uh, if you look at it, the killer appears to be moving towards London based upon where and when the body parts are showing up. So I think this one is a pretty loose fit. We have the Whitehall torso murder. Kozowski is definitely verified to be in the east end of London at the time, so there's really no problem there. Uh, Elizabeth Jackson, he's still there. He's, he's again in town. But though I think the most critical murder of the Thames torso murders is the Pynchon Street torso because we have a murder. Uh, it's, what, September 1889. He's moved uh, to 126 Cable Street. And I think, as we know, the torso was found across the street and across the tracks from Kozowski's new home and business. At the time... Kozowski's Polish wife, quote, disappears, close quote, at the same time the torso shows up right inside of his business. And, we, you know, it's buried in a sealed container of alcohol. We can get DNA. I think if we can match uh, the DNA to his late Polish wife, we may solve that entire series. I mean, that's key to the entire series right there. Uh, I guess I'd say I'm, I'm not, as, not as clued up, I'm sorry to say, on the torso murders, but isn't the observation about the, uh, the crucial observation about the Pynchon Street torso that it could have been uh, brought in from anywhere as opposed to the uh, the Whitechapel, the, the the canonical five, which obviously were were, were committed on site, uh, you know, where they were found. Uh, well, it could, she could have been killed anywhere, but uh, again, these murders seem to follow our friend around town here. 
And it's sort of like you have to ask uh, how many bodies show up across the track from the place you moved to. And my concern would Especially be at the time. Go ahead. My concern would be if he arrived in England with a fully formed lethal pathology that uh, there would be symptoms of that. And now your distance is two years in time, and just now he's committing mistakes. Where I don't think that would have been the case with a fantasy-driven killer that arrived in England in 1887. Well, I think we may be looking at two different reasons for the murders. Uh, I think the torso murders are probably a, a botched abortions, unless you're talking about his wife. And he may have tried to make her look like that. Again, this is just a personal opinion. But as far as the Ripper murders, I don't think the uh, reason for the Ripper murders were the same as the torso murders. You know, uh, Steve here, uh, something that occurred to me is that uh, killers... Uh, serial killers tend to change their M.O. as they go, and there are different motivations. If you remember the BTK killer here in the States, uh, he had a day job, and he was perfectly normal and working in a church, and then at evenings he was out cruising for prostitutes, and uh, he began to mix the two lives together, but at first he kept them very separate, and he was the one who actually... Uh, where they in, invented the term compartmentalizing, and uh, now that has been proven to be false. They can keep it separate for a while, but uh, eventually the two do run together, and I do believe that uh, this torso murder series was another avenue of his life, and uh, this fellow that was operating as a slasher evenings uh, actually had, might have had a respectable profession during the day of uh, performing abortions. It's quite interesting to, to observe about the, uh, the Raider and the... Uh uh, Raider and Ridge Ridgeway, who also led these kind of double lives, you know, the uh, the employee and the husband at home and the uh, and the killer, you know, at night in the evening, you know. Um, when they were employed in kind of non-murderous activity, uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't abortions, it wasn't it wasn't butchery, uh, it wasn't anything to do with uh, with cutting. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's an interesting point. I, I think you know, uh, it, the serial killers don't need for their normal employment have anything to do with uh, guts or, uh, you know, anything exactly. along those lines. Well, you know, if you're talking about misogynists, though, if you're looking at Chapman as being the killer, it comes to mind that, that uh, here we have an individual who was a uh, junior surgeon. He's now in the east end of London doing barbershop and uh, hairdressing. Can you imagine a guy out there uh, being a misogynist, fixing people's hair, women's hair, and then the next night killing them? I don't think there's a problem with that. Uh, he's a soci he, he appears to be, from Adam's description and from the various testimonies, he appears to be a sociopath. And he's trying very much to keep the two separate entities of his life apart from each other, but they're overlapping. And you know, there, is, there, is conflict. there is one thing I'd like to interject here very quickly. Uh, one thing that we noticed about when he was acting as the borough poisoner, he was photographing his wives dying slowly. And if he enjoyed being in the middle of the kill that much and actually watching these people suffer, why not uh, also be doing their hair and then uh, the next night, you know, he's planning to do an attack? It's the same MO, same behavior. Absolutely. I'm not entirely sure that, that you know, um, a, a Polish barber of that uh, generation would have been cutting women's hair as such. Um, and not that I'm well, well versed on tonsorial history, you understand. Right. But... Uh, uh, I, I'm exactly. sure he's been sort of trimming beards and uh, and, and tearing throats while he was at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> close shave there. Now, one of the, uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier, one of the main arguments that you see against George Chapman's candidacy as Jack the Ripper is is the change in in mo. Um, no one believes that someone who 
um, picked up the knife and did what he did uh, to these victims would then, um, a few years later, um, become a poisoner of, of a domestic poisoner. Um, can you um, can you tell us a little bit of your thoughts on, on that argument that we we see all the time? Right, uh, that's a very good question. Your, your question was, well, after uh, the sabbatical, did he change to, from a, a blitz disembowelment of strangers to a poisoning of wives? Right. Um, that, that's a very good question. Uh, I don't think anyone can definitively answer that authoritatively about any serial killer. Certainly I can't. Uh, with that said, we can look at his attempts to purchase poison in early 1888. That's Wolf Levinson. We mentioned him before, just before the Ripper murders. Uh, if he's trying to, uh, to purchase poison, in 1888, from trial testimony, he wanted to kill women then. Um, he didn't get the poison at the time. So perhaps he later returned to a method he preferred with poison. may also have simply been that too much for him or too bloody. Maybe he w- had what he wanted. He did not need to murder anyone anymore in that way. Maybe he just preferred to make the killing last longer with the poison. Steve, my agent here, talked about the, the photographs being taken. That would have definitely been a souvenirs. So we can speculate on reasons forever. But as far as the M.O.s changing, uh, you talk about uh, changing M.O.s. The FBI Serial Killer Task Force definitively says that they do change their M.O.s, and I think he did change his. Maybe he's getting older, and it comes to mind that he may very well have been experimenting with how he could like to kill people. So I don't think we can really rule anything out on that point. I don't, I don't think the M.O. Of a, of a serial killer can definitively be one way, and I think we're really focusing too much on the, the fact that he's convicted of one burl poison or moving, a, a murder, and we always focus it on that. We forget that here's an individual as a young man from the age of 14 trained as a surgeon. Now, despite uh, what our opinions of how good a surgeon was back then, the bottom line is when he was an early man, he cut up bodies as part of his surgical training. So he was good with a knife. All the documents state he was good with a knife. Jack apparently was good with a knife. So I think the Burl Poisoner, we focus way too much on that and not enough on the fact he did have a blade. And he was a serial killer. I think just on that point, Michael, the, the the surgical training. I mean, here we've got a you know a pimply adolescent in a small village or or, right. or a small town at least, which is uh, at Svolen in, in in Poland, working to a local doctor, uh, a local Jewish doctor called Moshko Rappaport. Right. Um, I, the population of Svolen around about the time is difficult to ascertain because the. Um, the, the Nazis, you know, destroyed great swathes of Polish history amongst uh, great swathes of Polish people and others. Um, but as far as we can tell, the population of Zwolland back then was only about 5,000, of which about 2,000 were Jewish. So the, the you know, the, the number of people on Moscow Rappaport's um, uh, role then, if you like, uh, were rather small. I, I, I doubt very much whether, you know, this young a 15-year-old boy would have would have seen much experience with the knife. And as his certificates point out, um, you know, they only ever specifically mention his skills at cupping and leaching. Um, there's some vague reference to studying with zeal the science of surgery or whatever, um, but the only specific tools of the trade uh, that are mentioned amongst the certificates that he kept relate to somewhat medieval medical practices. And there's not much evidence that he was a surgeon in the modern or or in the Western sense at all. Well, we've got got actually several uh, reports of his uh, documents are found by uh, George, uh, by uh, the police in the Crown Public House. And you do have one there that says, in the capacity of practicing surgical student, quote, by means of glasses, leeches, other assistants. However, 
Yeah. You do have a report from uh, the senior surgeon at the Prague Warsaw Hospital and says receiving instruction in practical surgery at the hospital of Prague Warsaw. You also have another report, 1886, that says, quote, he performed his surgical functions with full knowledge of the subject. We have, of course, the one you're talking about with zeal. And then we have um, the uh, accepted degree. The medical administration hereby testified to the fact that they do not see any reason to oppose the receiving a degree of junior surgeon. And we have to remember that at the very least, he had to have seen bodies cut up. Now, whether or not he did a lot himself, he had to do something to get that degree. And really, no matter how much later writers or myself think of how qualified a 19th century student of surgery was, the bottom line is clear. He was fully qualified to do the job to take out a body part. He knew how to use the knife, and he knew how to use it quick. Uh, indeed, but you know, we've, we've got to be aware as well that you know, there were various degrees of surgery. Um, sure. you know, there, was, there was the, the doctor, D-O-K-T-E-R, which was the, the Polish name for a, a properly medically qualified practitioner, and then there was the Feldscher. Right. Uh, or, or field surgeon. Barber uh, surgeon, yeah. Um, which, interestingly, um, Levison uh, uh, gives evidence and, and, and says that Krasowski himself described himself to him as a Feldscher. Right. Now, that's not quite, you know, uh, your Christian Barnards of this world. That's, that, that's, <laughs> that's something altogether a bit more prosaic and basic. So um, I don't think, I think it we've got to be careful here with how these terms translate, yeah? Right. Um, that's true. I certainly wouldn't want any of them carving up me at the time. But like well, I said, I think we only have, yes, <laughs> we only have to go back to the was he capable of uh, getting an organ out of a woman. I think that's pretty much uh, easy to accept. And of course, the uh, the surgical knowledge may be moot anyway, since uh, a good deal of contemporary evidence from the Whitechapel murders suggests that he uh, might have had very little to none at all. I mean, if you listen to Bond and, uh, and various uh, authorities from the Eddowes inquest, I mean, that might be a whole... Uh, unrelated debate altogether, but, uh, you know, something else to bear in mind. Well, that's an interesting question from Bond, because uh, if you look at uh, the doctors, I, I personally think, I don't have any, you know, any direct knowledge, but I personally think they were maybe a little embarrassed that it might have been one of their own. Good point. Well, I think the whole idea of tying the knife to the ripper is somewhat of a mistake. Uh, what we know is he had a lethal pathology. He was willing to inflict death on other individuals. Indeed. Indeed. And he was handy with a knife. But the killer is not bound to the knife. Uh, it's a tool to him. You know, his end is something else entirely, and the knife is a tool. Poison is a tool. So the goal is something other than the knife. And tying the killer to the knife is, is extraneous because it is a function of his psychology. I, I think I'd be more comfortable if, if the, the Whitechapel murders had happened with scissors. Oh. <laughs> I, I like the analogy to, to the psychological aspect. I think really it, when we've got the composite sketch going on, geographic profile, I think if you're going to push the case a little farther, I think we would need to continue with a detailed medical evaluation of the injuries, not the, the, the uh, mutilation, but the injuries that were taking body parts out and nailed on any skills a killer may have. If we've got an individual out there who's a practicing surgeon and has some historical knowledge about uh, the East End of London, knows the Ripper murders, the analysis of what it would take to take out uh, you know, body part A or body part B, I think would be very instructive. And if they say there's no skills, okay, there's no skills. If they say there had to have been some kind of skills, you're eliminating suspects off the top. Can I just pick up on something that Dave uh, raised there about the... Um the the pathology or the or the, or the sociopathology uh, of, of this guy and you know how it relates to his psychology. 
Uh, would Michael or anyone else have any observations on, uh, you know, how this, this, this explosive, literally visceral method of killing, you know, literally getting your hands dirty sort of killing, um, morphs into this, this almost meek poisoning, um, you know, almost a decade down the line? Oh, absolutely. Because he viewed it as a better method. There's no explanation beyond that. You know, but it's, an, it's 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 a major gear change, though. You know, that's that's what I can't quite. Um, well, let's let's see if we can put a, a bit of gear onto it. Uh, if we know that he's trying to acquire poison in the early part of 1888 and he fails, he wants to murder a human being using poison. Levison said, "I didn't want to get 12 years." So obviously, he's he, trying to. Yeah. So he tries to people. Sorry, Michael. Just on that point, Levinson actually doesn't give a date for that. He just says he, he asked me to get him some medicine once, and right. you know, he right. said. Right. So we don't know that that was in 1888. Well, okay, but bottom line, he did try to get poison from him, and he, when he did get poison, he tried to murder him. So I don't think yeah. that would be a big problem between uh, murdering from one way or another. Perhaps you, if you're a serial killer, you enjoy a particular method, a lot of, of course, experiment. But I don't see any reason why there, there's a problem with that. Psychology of murder is, is murder, especially a brutal murder. Both of them are, are brutally murdering. Well, I have to agree on this point. Uh, once the psychology is developed to the point or de-developed to the point where it's lethal... Uh, you can't really predict the behavior. Obviously, there are value systems that are compromised that lead to this behavior, and there's no telling which value system is compromised. So, you can't, it, it's a guess. You know, and literally, you know, it's a guess. Right. We could sit here and speculate for years and years and years and not come up with anything, but the you know, bottom line is the, this guy was a vicious killer, and you concentrate on that aspect of the case. I guess you know, there's Posovsky was responsible for both murders, the poisons and the mutilations. Uh, if nothing else, it would certainly make him uh, a rarity in terms of serial killers. I mean, uh, we shouldn't exclude him on that basis. But on the other hand, right. uh, very rarely in the annals of uh, serial crime do we see such a uh, you know dramatic leap. Right. Um, you know, I also find it interesting that, that some uh, researchers or reporters look at Dr. Cream, who is definitively... A, uh, a serial poisoner, and yet they'll put him up as being Jack the Ripper. I've always found that to be interesting. Then when they won't do that to George Chapman. Um, now, sandwiched between the Jack the Ripper series and the Burrow poisonings, we have the uh, murders that took place in the United States, and I do want to get to that because you claim in your book, and 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 some of these vic- some of these American murder victims were were actually shot. So um, they they. Uh, if it, indeed it was George Chapman committing these crimes, um, he would have um, some, some of those murders and, and what you believe is this, this, a series of American murders deviate from each other quite significantly. In one case, a woman was attacked in her house, I believe. Elizabeth um, Senior, right? And then, and then, um, like then, like I said, uh, we have shooting victims, and we have the murder of Carrie Brown. So I do want to talk about uh, these these American American killings. Uh, let, let's start by uh, <clears throat> discussing when you believe uh, George Chapman arrived in the United States, because that's a, again another point of contention. Right. Uh, First of all, I don't have a handle on his wife, Lucy. In fact, uh, I recently went back for a look and uh, found nothing yet. And I understand there's been some difficulty locating his name on a passenger list. That can be a bit frustrating. I apologize for that. Uh, having said that, I went back to the Mormon Research Library in uh, uh, Santa Monica. It's the regional family history library. 
And with that, I was able to correct the timing error. And in fact, the ship that he arrived in uh, appears to be the Wyland, which is W-I-E-L-A-N-D, which arrived actually a day earlier. And that's my error. I should take uh, responsibility for that. But uh, having said that, he's now there 36 hours before uh, the first uh, murder of Kerry Brown. So I believe he arrived in uh, New York April 22nd, uh, 1891. So he was right on time for the Kerry Brown murder. Now, now um, you like you had said, um, there there is a misprint in your book, um, the American I, Murders of Jack the Ripper, in which you uh, you identify the ship as the Wasteland, W A E S L A N D, and um, we we scoured the uh, ship's manifest for for days looking for for apologies for that your suspect, but then you did send me the. Um, the uh, the the Wyland uh, ship's manifest that does contain the name that you believe is uh, Severy Koslowski K O S L O W S K Y. Um, the first name um, is very difficult to read, and and some researchers have claimed that that it actually says Yuri, um, but you know it's really hard to decipher. But nevertheless, this individual that you you claim is George Chapman, it seems that. Some would argue that it seems that he was – well, he, first off, he wasn't traveling with his wife, which, as you said, she was hard to locate. And it, and it also seems that um, he was traveling with a group of Polish laborers. And he lists his uh, final destination on the ship's manifest as Chicago. Right. Um, how, how do you uh, reconcile those seeming discrepancies with it being George Chapman? Uh, good observations. Uh, traveling with a bunch of other Polish chaps uh, would be a good way for me to travel if I was, you know, hiding amongst them. Um, as far as the Chicago uh, destination, I have to remember that when he was interviewed in prison, ready for his trial in 1903, he said he was born in Michigan. So the fact that he would lie about where he came from, where he's going to, really d- doesn't bother me at all. Um, the age of 30, he looked older, so I don't have any problem with that. Um, but as far as the name, of course, it does sound like that. Of course, that was written by the purser, not him. And the first name, you're right. I mentioned that in the book. It's very difficult to uh, get any kind of a real good, solid readout on that first name. But uh, Klosowski is very clear. And it's, uh, to me, and when you look up circumstantial evidence and you look at what's going on, the, the fact that this individual arrived in New York Harbor just before Kay Brown's murder is really uh, a key point to me. Now there is also researcher, uh, in particular R.J. Palmer, who who uh, located a 27-year-old on a ship's manifest uh, named Severin Klasowski, K-L-A-S-O-W-S-K-Y, who right. who uh, you're familiar with this, who uh, is uh, arrived on July 28, 1891, um, has his wife written down as any A-N-Y aboard the SS Friesland, F-R-I-E-S-L-A-N-D. R.J. Palmer and others believe that this might be George Chapman, which would be two months after the murder of Kerry Brown. So what are your thoughts on on that discovery? It's very interesting, but if you look at, again, you look at that article, uh, the interview in 1903, you've got an individual who's fighting for his life, either under Chapman or Klosowski, and he's got an interview. He's trying to tell people that he was not British He's not Polish. He was born in America. And he mentioned, and this was the key point that sent me to looking for the ships, that he, was, he came across from America in 1893 aboard a cattle boat, the Westerland, he thinks her name is. And I don't know how many of our, our uh, group here have traveled across the ocean on ships. I've been across twice 
uh, and you'd never forget the name of the ship you travel across on, on you know, the oceans on. So I think that's a very interesting uh, observation, but I don't think it's, it's our man. Um, so so you you believe that that he was just uh, that this was just a lie that he was constructing that he he was actually referring to the boat that he voyaged on to the United States when he referred to the ship that he uh, took back to London. Right. He would. I think he was trying to get some kind of a name of a ship he knew was there because after all, he's fighting for his life. He needs to have some kind of a string. So I think he was just playing with with names and trying to get himself born in Michigan. And you know, it's interesting to me is you're looking at a date here. Of uh, of uh, on the article stating he came to America, pardon me, he came to London, England in 1893. To me, that's very telling because what was he afraid of people learning about in 1891, 1892 that he had to actually write in his, his little paper there? Came to uh, uh, England in 1893, so I think he's hiding something in this country. Um, does anyone have any uh, comments on on this whole ship ship manifest um, business and what? what George Chapman's voyage to the United States before I move on to Kerry Brown? or All I can say is good luck to anyone trying to find anyone in them. Uh, I've tried it myself and I sympathize with anyone who's gone through the same. <laughs> you, you get eye strain pretty quickly. You're going to microfiche for days on end. You really do. Yeah, but you I get a like hell of a lot of people. You know, that's a good thing. <laughs> say again? You're going to meet a hell of a lot of people that way. <laughs> I guess indeed. <laughs> I would like to point out that the Wasteland and the Wheeland or Wyland. Uh, those ships are on the same microfilm right next to each other, and there is another ship on there called the Westerland, not too far away. But uh, they're all on, it's an easy mistake to make. They're all uh, very, very close. I paid Steve to say that. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, now the, uh, the Carrie Brown murder, um, yes, which which occurred um, on April twenty April twenty fourth, eighteen ninety one. Right. The the witness description of the murderer uh, in that case is is described as a man of about thirty two to thirty five years of age, five feet eight and a half to five feet nine inches tall, light complexion and slim build, a long sharp nose, light colored hair and a heavy blonde mustache, thought to be a German. And, and in your book, um, the American Murders of Jack the Ripper, you state that. The description of the murderer of Carrie Brown is, quote, practically a word picture of Severin Klosowski. Um, how do you reconcile the, the two? I mean, I mean um, unless, unless – I don't know if you believe that because he was a barber, he, he was, again, using a disguise or – because uh, Klosowski, I believe, was shorter than the witness description of the Carrie Brown murder. And then he, of course, didn't have a heavy blonde mustache as, we, as we've all seen pictures of his heavy, dark mustache. So could you go into a little bit about the man scene with Carrie Brown in the last moments of her life? Sure. Uh, the blonde part it does not sound familiar. I've got two descriptions here. One from Mary Minter, uh, which was a, a uh, individual who knew Carrie Brown. She says, around 32 years old, 5'8", tall, slim build, long, sharp nose. Of course, that looks like Kozalski. Heavy mustache of light color, foreign in appearance, possibly German. And, of course, Kozalski was known to speak a few words in German. What I like was uh, speaks broken English, dark brown cutaway hat, black trousers, old derby hat, etc., and we have Mr. Kelly, uh, again from the Kerry Brown murder, about five foot nine inches in height, light complexion, long nose, light mustache, wore a shabby cutaway coat, smeared with blood, pronounced German accent. Um, generally, descriptions, I think police officers will mostly tell you, are never really that accurate. But as far as the, the uh, pronounced German accent, which could have been broken English, as far as the long, sharp nose, heavy mustache, light color blonde, whatever, um, thin build, 
that's a that's a reasonably decent picture of, of our men, I think. The only thing I would like to add is I saw an incredible similarity between Carrie Brown's murder and Mary Jane Kelly. Obviously, Carrie Brown wasn't mutilated to the extent that Mary Jane Kelly was. Um, we've seen mortuary right. photos of of, um, of Carrie Brown, um, right. which which shows a, a major wound that kind of wraps around her um, privates and into her gut. Um, yeah, very strange. Uh, I think uh, Abilene may have led us uh, slightly astray there when he says that uh, the American murders resembled the um, uh, London <laughs> ones so much. Uh, that's uh, and, and obviously, as you point out yourself, John, uh, that's not that's not really the case. Uh, to be fair, I mean, I think Abilene's suspect is obviously quite a reasonable one, but the actual sort of theory that he he weaves around Klosowski's involvement, you know, the organ harvester acting on commission and, you know, committing identical murders in the States uh, is obviously more outlandish. Um, yeah, I have so to agree. I, this is Michael. I agree that the organ harvesting was, was a bit uh, out there. But yeah. uh, well, I think what really pointed me into this direction was uh, the loose connection with some of the events in Klosowski's life. Uh, when you look at the first murder, uh, that of Kerry Brown in New York City. You have Klausowski and his wife moving from London, England, to basically to New York City. And even though we don't have a definitive state a date, we do know that he moved from New York to New Jersey. And you have a Hannah uh, Robinson murder, which is August of 1891. And I think after that, they probably moved to New Jersey because they weren't there just a few days. They were there for long enough for him to say, you know, going back to New York. And then you have the murder of uh, Elizabeth Sr., the woman you were talking about earlier in her home in Moburn, New Jersey. Um, that occurs, and then just before that, she leaves him because he threatens her with a knife and goes back, lets Lucy goes back to London. And then just before he leaves and goes back to London from America, we have the final murder. So loosely, you have four murders occurring in very key points in this individual's life, his arrival, his movement, his wife leaving, and him leaving America. That was what the one thing that drew me to the possibility, although you're not going to be able to definitively prove it, but the def definite possibility that he may be involved in all four of them. Well, I absolutely agree. Uh, wherever this particular gentleman went, uh, people were likely to die. He had a fatal yes. pathology, yes. and the question is, when did the pathology become fatal? You know, there's there's not any doubt that he eventually killed. There's not any doubt that uh, he started manifesting very severe behavioral disorders early on in his life, you know, before he left Poland, for example. So... You know, Sorry, Dave, do we, do, we, do we know that? Do we know what precipitated his departure from Poland? Well, it's not necessarily what precipitated. He abandoned his circumstance altogether. He had worked, Completely. you know, theoretically, according to the evidence, he had worked his whole life to become an assistant surgeon, and he up and leaves the post and the country and his language and his family. For what? To live in a never, slum in never. the East End? That's a very good point. He never really uh, went back or even had contact with people knowingly, as far as I can tell, or intentionally back in that area. So he definitely abandoned everything he went to go to one of the filthy uh, ghettos in uh, Europe at the time. Well, he wasn't, he wasn't exactly li living in moody splendor in, 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 in Warsaw. I mean, the, yeah, the he did, he did have district was the Muranowska district was, was um, you know, a, a large sort of working class Polish Jewish area at that time. So I think you know. we got to remember this guy is basically your your, your young peasant uh, with really no future. Now he's working and and uh, training in the Warsaw Hospital. He's got his own uh, clinic. He's working on. He's got his own apartment. This guy's doing okay for a peasant in the middle of Warsaw, Poland. 
Um, uh, he, he was working in a Jewish hospital, the Praga Hospital, and he was living in a Jewish district of, of Warsaw, a, a, a relatively down at heel area, um, right. which, which later became part of the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, right. I mean, you know, m- much, much later, obviously. Uh, we all know right. what happened there. Uh, exactly. And I'm not suggesting that the East End of London would have been a home from home for him. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the conditions there were god-awful, but, uh, you know, we can only guess what they were like in Warsaw. But we certainly don't know what the stimulus was. I mean, he may he may have lost his family, for all we know, uh, and decided to, to, to you know, um, start a new life. Um, that's that's a distinct possibility. It would be very interesting to find out if, if the small little church that was where he was born in had any family records of his uh, family. It would be very interesting to see how his parents died or if he had any siblings pass away. That's a very good area that I'd love to see some research on. Indeed. Um, um, I suppose this brings us on to motive. I mean, in, in terms of the poison murders, um, right. you know, there is the su- suggestion that Mary Spink, um, uh, I mean, she had a legacy of £500 or whatever it was, um, and that that, you know, might have given him some sort of uh, impetus to, to do away with her. Uh, I just wonder what the motives would have been for the previous murders. Um, yeah, there, I mean, there does seem to be uh, some kind of monetary um advantageousness of killing off the uh, poison uh, murders but uh, going back basically to uh, to the american murders uh we touched on some of the the murders that occurred it also, i was just reminded here i have a note that uh, the last murder you were talking about well it was the only one that was shot um here she is shot obviously she's shot through the heart throats cut gash on forehead dragged away so it's murder for murder's sake but we have to remember there was american pistol found in uh kozowski's uh, pub the crown in the end of 1902 when they investigated. So there's another possible link. Now, you know, ballistics, you're never going to find it. But it, to me, that's another piece of circumstantial evidence. One thing I would like to point out is that uh, if he began poisoning for money, uh, I forget the woman's name in America, but it was clear that she had been robbed of a few dollars. Maybe this is where he first got the idea. Uh, the, the gal that was 73 years old, where uh, you know, maybe he got the idea that he could murder for money. Uh, one other thing I'd like to point out. Can anyone tell me what URI stands for? Uh, it's a European name. Can anybody tell me what URI stands for? I think it's George. Exactly. What was yeah. his uh, M.O.? He took his victim's name, Annie Georgina Chapman, and turned it into George Chapman. Why not George Kloslowski? But that, that, was, that, that would have been later, wouldn't it? He went to know. America with Lucy. Uh, I don't know, but it's just a thought. It just hit me when I was looking at the ship's manifest here. <laughs> yeah, Georgina yeah. would have been later when he came back from England. Yeah, I mean, okay. Back from America, yeah. Now, okay, that's just a thought. I do want to discuss your contention that um, that George Chapman took his name from one of his Ripper victims. You continually mention in your books the possibility that the Annie Chapman with which George Chapman lived after his return to London in 1892 may have been Annie Georgina Chapman, the daughter of the Ripper victim. Um, You state that, uh, you know, it's in, it's in most of your books um, and including the most recent one, the poison murders where you say as, as although as yet to be proven, the Annie Chapman who moved in with Klosowski could very well have been the daughter of Ripper victim, Annie Chapman. Um, It's been, fairly well established that it's actually not the case. The individual that George Chapman lived with was actually named Sarah Ann Chapman. This was discovered back in 2001 by Neil Stubbing Sheldon, who does a lot of research on the victims of Jack the Ripper. What is your take on on, um, this this whole Annie, Annie Georgina Chapman as opposed to Sarah Ann Chapman? 
Well, I don't know too much about the Sarah Ann Chapman. I'd have to take a look at that to deal with the comment intelligently on it, so I won't uh, address that. Uh, I'm glad somebody's still looking into it. I'd like to see some more information on that one. I, I personally agree that he t- that he did take his name from Annie Chapman. I don't think there's any real doubt about that one at this time. Uh, whether or not she was the Annie Georgina Chapman, I think it's still debatable as we're talking now. Uh, as I said, we do need to do more research. But I must say that Georgina, part of the name, does convert where, very well into George, i.e. George Chapman. And giving himself a woman's name really does fit into the psychology of a misogynist. It has a lot to do with self-hate. And if anyone ever had a deep-seated hate, that would be uh, Chapman slash Kozowski. So I wouldn't be surprised. But if there's uh, a definitive statement that proves that uh, she was not there, I have no problem with that at all. Okay. Um, yeah, just to source my material, um, Neil Stubbing Sheldon came out with a uh, series of pamphlets on, on the victims of Jack the Ripper. He first um, talked about this connection that you allege um, – in the 2001 pamphlet um, about Annie Chapman, in which he does name um, the woman who lived with George Chapman as Sarah Ann Chapman. Um, and then he uh, reprint, he repeated it in his Catherine Eddowes pamphlet that came out in 2003, and it is in his new book, which is still available. Uh, those early pamphlets are now out of print, but his current book is The Victims of Jack the Ripper, um, in which he um, repr- reprints all of these uh, uh, pamphlets that he he has um, came out with over the years, so um, it's sourced in there. Um, I'd definitely like to take a look at it. Okay. Um, it, now I do. Wanna... I, th- I think if you're really gonna, the one thing you need to do if you're going to be looking at anything of, as far as the Ripper murders of George Tapman, uh, you certainly have to keep a complete open mind. Anything that pops up is definitely uh, helping us along the road. I don't think you can be tied to any particular aspect of either the case or the suspects. Right. Um, one thing I did want to talk about, we we had mentioned Aberlein earlier and his comments in the, the Pall Mall Gazette. Um, he had also, in the H.L. Adam book, it, the, we get the comment that Godley uh, provided Adam, in which um, Aberlein was, yeah. was uh, um, supposedly said uh, upon the arrest of George Chapman that you've caught Jack the Ripper at last. Right. Um, and uh, authors like such as Paul Bag and others, um, and in the A to Z, have kind of argued ag- against this occurring, or at least uh, as Adam states in his book, uh, because Aberlein himself uh, suggests that he first started drawing the connection between George Chapman and Jack the Ripper uh, p- upon hearing the opening statements um, in the court uh, proceedings against Chapman, not not when he was first arrested, but nevertheless. There was a uh, press report that was that surfaced here recently uh, from 1946 in Reynolds News that actually says that it was George Chapman himself who said, you've got Jack the Ripper at last. This came out on the 15th of September 1946 as uh, one of three points of argument in favor of George Chapman as the Ripper. It says that when he was arrested, he is alleged to have said, you've got Jack the Ripper at last, meaning Chapman says that. Right. Um, now, is, is that a possibility that maybe uh, the information that Aberling provided to, uh, or that Godley provided to Adam, could could be some kind of um, a misquote, or is H. L. Adam was kind of confused on that count? What are your views on that? Uh, that's a fascinating question. It really is the first time I've heard that second part. Uh, that's always a possibility. I mean, the gentleman was old at the time. He may have uh, misspoke, or that maybe Adam got it incorrectly. He was basically editing the the book Trial of George Chapman at the time, and of course he he says that one of his key sources was uh, Inspector uh, George Chap- uh, um, Godley. Um, 
I, I really wouldn't know. I, it's the first time I've ever heard that, but it's a fascinating piece of information. I, I would think that if Chapman actually bragged and said, uh, you've, got George Chapman, uh, you've got Jack the Ripper last, uh, that might have made headline news. Right. He seems out of character because, you know, he, he was denying yeah. his own identity, wasn't he, throughout his trial? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was, he was, well, he was condemned to death, and he still wouldn't admit being uh, Severin Kosowski. No. So I, I would find that uh, very difficult to believe. It would be fascinating. I mean, I'd love to see it, but uh, I, I can't really say at this point that I believe it. Right. I, I, I kind of, uh, I mean, like this is it's probably a, an error in this press report, but it does read. Uh, it's interesting. that um, The theory that George Chapman was the Ripper had many adherents, including the late Sir Edward Carson, who 15 years later appeared for the Crown when Chapman was indicted for the murder of a girl who he had been living with as his wife. Chapman was found guilty and hanged. The suggestion that he was the Ripper was based on three facts apart from his extremely evil nature. These facts are one. When he was arrested, he is allegedly to have said, you've got Jack the Ripper at last. So, and, and then it goes on from there. But it is it is um, very interesting. Uh, it really is. It really is. Was. And that's really one of the reasons really why this is such a fascinating case. Even though you go along, things keep popping up. Now, Aberlane, we can kind of um, um, cite as being uh, one of, well, I, I guess there was articles in, in the Pall Mall Gazette prior to Aberlane's comments about George Chapman that kind of got the reporter to uh, go and interview him. But um, we've seen that Aberlane at the same time wavers on, um, he gives contradictory statements about um, whether or not the police officials knew who Jack the Ripper was. What's everyone's opinion on on? on Aberlein's credibility here uh, on um, you had mentioned it earlier about how we can dismiss the organ harvesting scenario that Aberlein proposes but what is right what, what you know how much uh, weight should we give um, Aberlein's opinion I don't really know uh, how much weight you can get his opinion um, because obviously he's not here to, to test it out but I think the only thing we can say about uh, Inspector George Frederick Abilene is he believed that George Chapman Skozowski was Jack the Ripper. I think that's about as far as we can go. And we have to remember also that he continued to investigate the crime for years. In fact, when the Paul Mall Gazette uh, reporter, or when it, I forget which is, what his name was, went to him in, I believe, Bournemouth, England, uh, my adapted hometown, I might add, in England, uh, to interview him, he was surrounded by notes that he'd been investigating for years. And I'd love to get my hands on some of the notes. Apparently, he interviewed Lucy Bagerski slash Kozlowski. He interviewed other people. So he kept uh, track of this case for many years. And my question is the, to the group here is whether or not they know or heard where those files are because that's got to be a fascinating case study he's got. If only we it, did, Michael. <laughs> pardon me? If only we did. Um, yes. But, <laughs> as, as you say, things keep surfacing all the time. I mean, I guess one of the things that, you know, one criticism we could le- uh, levy at um, – Abilene in this context, and you touched on it there, was that he uh, allegedly interviewed Lucy Bedersky, who said that um, Severin had been, uh, you know, uh, wandering the streets late at night during the Whitechapel murders. But uh, Lucy Bedersky didn't actually meet him until um, the summer of 1889. 89, yeah. So, you right. know, the, fa- the, fa- the fact that Abilene sort of feels the need to resort to this, um, this myth-making um, right. kind of sheds a, a slightly dodgy light on the rest of his comments. Well, Indeed, it does, uh, but I think, yeah, I'm sorry? No, I was just going to say, it, it, it does seem like uh, Abilene was, uh, to a large extent, relying on either memory or sort of rather faulty um, uh, press sources. For example, he talks about the uh, American murders being identical, 
and he talks about Jack the Ripper being a, a sort of expert physician, whereas, you know, obviously we know that uh, other medical experts from the time uh, had wildly contrasting views on that. So uh, They certainly did. They lead you astray quite often. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas Abilene seemed to have sort of nailed his colors to certain particular masts. Right. Uh, most, notab- most notably that of Wynne Baxter, who was talking about this organ harvester who was acting on a commission and uh, right. you know, all the way well, back in the, in the wake of the Chapman murder. So he seemed to be sort of very, a bit of an adherent to that theory, if you like. Sorry, yeah, he does. And, it, and I'll be honest with you, I think he probably tied himself psychologically to the case. I think it bothered him for the rest of his life. I mean, I have no doubt that he was definitely trying to find a, a way to tag somebody with this murder before he passed away. And I don't oh, think yeah. we can lay any blame necessarily at his feet because uh, uh-huh. we all suffer from a degree of what's called linkage blindness where we tend to associate crimes with of the knife with Jack the Ripper. We all suffer from it, and he suffered from it too. And now we know it's a modern phenomenon. We, we can describe the phenomenon, but there's no reason to believe it didn't exist in antiquity. And he was following the same behavior that, quite frankly... Even experienced ripperologists still fall fall victim to. Yes, indeed. <laughs> now you had um, sent me a list of uh, questions, Gordon, and one of the yes. one of the things that you suggest um, we should discuss is is whether um, the police missed anything that could have identified George Chapman as a possible suspect. What what would you believe that that um, the answer to that question would be? I mean, do you do you believe that there were, that George Chapman left clues that should have been discovered that would come uh, to his arrest? Or I yeah, there there might have been. I mean, there are things that they could have done. Or perhaps you know, do a card file. Interviews might have been easier to to the source. But the the one thing that I looked at uh, that I wrote about in, in or mentioned in my book, Alias Jack the Ripper, was a port, report by David McCormick in uh, Identity of Jack the Ripper. And we go to Joseph Lav, who was a member of the, I believe, the Working Man's Club, which, of course, was right next to where Elizabeth Stride was murdered, uh, reportedly told the police that there was been a stranger in the club earlier that evening. Now, he described the man as pretending to be a Polish barber. Uh, Lav has said the thought that the man was, of course, Russian, and he was living in George Yard. Now, this is, to me, a very good description of Kozowski. Now, if they had this clue, followed it up, the police may have connected this inquiry uh, of the first murder of the double event with Martha Tabrams or Tabrams investigation and could very well have arrested Kozlowski. If so, I think they, they missed a very big opportunity like that. And, of course, there's also the missed opportunity the police interviewed Kozlowski after the Pynchon Street torso murder because the reports were that they, they interviewed everybody in the local area. So it's a shame they could not connect him earlier interviews to that one as well. They may have solved the case at that point. I wonder if anybody else... Pardon me? Well, quite often, you know, serial killers do get interviewed, but they slip through the net. I mean, quite oh, yeah. possibly in the wake of the Pynchon Street, I mean, you know, Klosowski could have been interviewed, and uh, sure. and uh, there was simply no evidence and, or, or no reason to think that uh, he had any, any, any involvement. Um, right, exactly. They would have faced him face-to-face. He would have smiled. He's a very good uh, chameleon. I think he should have, would have answered the questions quite normally and been happy to have, uh, once again, uh, bested the police. Now, Donald McCormick, um, who you mentioned uh, is the source of this Joseph Lave story, it doesn't really give any uh, evidence that it, that it ever occurred. I mean, um, so you're, you're, so I mean, to, to base um, your argument on Donald McCormick, I mean, uh, it, when when he's widely famous for inventing um, a lot of information, um, right, and, and sticking it in his book. 
So I, I'd be wary of, of using Donald McCormick's um, book, The Identity of Jack the Ripper, um, for a, a source of anything. That, that's just my opinion. Um, Especially in this context, uh, I, I think, because, uh, as we know, uh, Joseph Love was uh, uh, had only just dropped in. He was, he was just visiting and uh, lodging at the, uh, at the Burner Street Club for a short time. So, you know, where he got all this local knowledge from, I don't know. So, so McCormick could have picked a better witness if he was going to speculate, yeah? Right, exactly. So that's why you have to keep an eyeball up for the minefields that are in this case. That's, oh, that, that's, another, that, that's the reason why it's, it's really fascinating, too, because you get bits and pieces you have to pick up, you throw them away. Yes. Um, I'd like to know uh, my panelists' opinion as, as well. Um, what, what, where where do, do you guys fall on, on, um, on George Chapman as Jack the Ripper? How does he rate amongst the suspects, in everyone's opinion? In terms of the police suspects, the uh, i.e. suspects who were fingered by contemporary investigators, I'd say he's better than most. Uh, but still, uh, in my opinion, a long way from being Jack the Ripper, but that's just me. Certainly he makes a lot of the other suspects, fingered at the time, Drew it, for example, he makes them look like pussycats, but uh, still a thumbs down for me, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, ben, you, you, um, you are well known for supporting the candidacy of George Hutchison. Um, right. Um, R. Michael Gordon suggests that Astrakhan Man um, fits the description of George Chapman. So I'd, maybe um, I, didn't, I didn't get Gareth a chance to answer that question I just posed, but, but I do want to ask Gordon, what are your opinions of the uh, George Hutchison witness sighting of Astrakhan Man? Um, he could have sighted it in that area, but I don't think one sighting really makes a, a Ripper suspect that, that, that definitive, to be honest with you. Now, you know, having said that, I don't think we can fully discount the possible murder of one or two victims by another killer in this series. I think most people who look at this case would admit the possibility is very real. But at that point, it becomes more of a guessing game. Any of them could have murdered one or two. I would like to see more research in that area. So I think just because he's identified in one area, he may be a killer in that particular area, but not necessarily Jack the Ripper, at least the person we're calling Jack the Ripper. I think the interesting thing about the uh, Astrakhan man sighting is that uh, some people, I'm not saying, uh, Michael, you do it, but uh, certainly some adherents of the uh, of the Kozowski candidacy do, um, mm-hmm. is that uh, because Kozowski is later pictured, you know, with all, all dapper and, uh, you know, with this, this wonderful uh, coiffured hair and, uh, right. uh, and a sailor's cap and everything else. Yeah, that, I have uh, cap. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, quite. Uh, you know, you, you know, every bit the sort of aspiring working class gentleman uh, that he somehow looked like that back in 1888. Um, exactly, uh, he made that picture himself, so he wanted to look good. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, way, you know, uh, he is he is murdering that woman as he's taking that photograph too. <laughs> he is, yeah. That's never, never thought of it like that. But you know, the the, the the truth of the matter is probably that uh, back in 1888, at least, um, this newly arrived, whether he was there for two years or whether he'd just been there for a year, um, immigrant from Poland, you know, slumming it as a hairdresser in in one of the poorest parts of uh, of London, was unlikely to have been kitted out to the extent that Astrakhan Man was. Mm. You know, the fact that Chapman later came into some sort of uh, wealth, I suppose. Um, doesn't mean that he looked like that in 1888. And in fact, uh, uh, Levison, in in his testimony, reports meeting up with uh, Chapman again in 1894 um, 
And he was asked at the police court, you know, what uh, Chapman looked like at that time, 1894. And pointedly, Levison says, oh, he was all la-di-da then. Yeah? Yeah, he very was. Two wives, one British, one foreign. (laughs) Indeed. So, you know, uh, I mean, mean, what Levison is saying then is that he was noticeably, you know, better looking, so to speak, in 1894. He was la-di-da then. Um, So when he first met him, he couldn't have been all that... uh, Salubrious, yeah. Well, they got enough uh, poison murders out there, or using the knife to get enough cash to get a new suit. Well, indeed. <laughs> I think, in terms of his candidacy, candidacy in general, we have to look at modern information and how he fits into modern information. And when you look at you know what we have learned or what we think we've learned about that particular set of behaviors that we associate with serial killers, he fits right in. He was a very dangerous fellow. And uh, I wouldn't rule out any action simply be- on his part simply because he was such a dangerous fellow and he had so many value systems that were compromised. Oh, I, I totally agree. This is Michael. Uh, this individual was pro- proven in the court of law to be a very methodical, cold-blooded killer. And he was a violent misogynist, so he was a classic serial killer. There's no doubt about that. And uh, just because he poisoned at one point, he might have used a knife earlier, he was definitely a brute all the way through his entire life. One um, final question I have, um, and, and then I and then I'm about all questioned out. I don't know if uh, anyone else can um, can come. Of course, continue to talk about it after this one. But um, okay, if um, I, one of the things I've always thought is that uh, upon his arrest for the poison murders, um, he he was a pack rat in the sense that he kept a lot of documentation. I mean, he uh, as it was mentioned earlier, he denied who he was, but yet in his position, there were documents proving who he was. He kept the uh, labels from the prescription bottles of poison that he was using against his wives. So I believe he even kept the written Indeed. record. Of um of his wife's condition in some kind of journal. Well, he also he also kept the uh, the uh, cards from the funerals, the the bills for the undertaker, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Hey, he was a pack rat, all right. right. So why why wasn't there um, any um, evidence of the Ripper crimes found in his possession? Would you would you have thought that um, he would have kept mementos of of those series of murders as well? Or did, when he changed mo, did he did he just put all of the Whitechapel murder stuff behind him, or what? What are your thoughts on that? That is well, a, a, a state. Sorry, go ahead, Michael. For, first, you. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. I, I've thought about that myself. And if you look at a serial killer, uh, as far as uh, we can tell, um, if he's a collector, either he's collecting photographs or he's collecting body parts, etc., uh, you don't necessarily have to have them within grabbing distance or touching. You just have to know that they're near. And that's one of the reasons why I've just recently written again to the uh, London uh, archaeological group that went in there and did a dig because the facade of the Crown Public House is still there. So is the small backyard and so is the basement. Personally, the reason I think they didn't find anything on the Ripper murders is I think the the evidence is is still there. I think it's in the wall somewhere, maybe in the basement in an area that was patched. But I think we also have to remember that there's a distinct possibility that the list of material found in the public house may have been a black bag. It may have been a knife that the Black Museum still has and doesn't talk about it. Because if you go back to 1952, you've got a series on a radio called The Black Museum with Orson Welles. Orson Welles personally went to the Black Museum, the Museum of Crime nowadays, and was able to handle bits and pieces of crimes. 
he was interviewed later on, and they said, well, where did you get the, the information for your one-year series of stories? There were 52 tales. And the other one, uh, one of the series was called The Straight Razor. He said, every single story was an item I picked up at Scotland Yard's Black Museum. And The Straight Razor show was a Burrow Poisoner, but it's talking about blades and razors. So my personal opinion is I think they did find something, not necessarily what they thought was Jack the Ripper at the time, but I think they found something. I think you can find it in the Black Museum. The other half is, like I said, if you're a serial killer and you want your stuff close, stick it in the wall. You're the one who knows it's there. The only one who has to know it's there. So I'm not too surprised. Now, like I said, I did write uh, the folks that did a, a archaeological dig there. Um, I'm going to see if we get a response back from them. I know they took some photographs. We'll see what they say. I wouldn't mind seeing some Scotland Yard tape go up there right now and do a search of the backyard and the facade and the uh, downstairs walls of the basement. They may find something. They may saw it just right on the spot right there. That's uh, really interesting. Um, so, so, um, so you're of the opinion, obviously, <clears throat> that that the Jack the Ripper case can be solved. There. Yes, indeed. I, I think not only can the Jack the Ripper case be solved, I think that they can find out the name of his wife, uh, the real wife in Poland, not Lucy Baggersy. I think they may be able to match DNA, uh, mitochondria DNA, to the Pension Street torso, which they know where it's located. It's sealed. It should have some DNA in there. I think they can solve the torso murders, at least that particular torso murder. And if you find one body part in the wall of the Crown Public House, you're done. He's Jack, and we all go home. Does anyone uh, have any comments on that? Yeah, I'd just like to point out uh, that, that I believe that his Polish wife was Lucy Badersky. Um Yeah, so well, uh, no, he, had, he had he had two wives. Lucy Badersky was a Polish woman that he married uh, in London. But yeah. remember, we talk about uh, Adams, uh, uh, the trial of George Chapman. Mm-hmm. He mentions that his real Polish wife from Poland came in and lived for a while at 126 Cable Street, uh, St. George in the East, with both of them. Eventually, she left and, quote, in the book, disappeared, close quote, at the same time, almost within, like, I imagine, weeks of the Pension Street torso showing up. So we may solve the whole thing, well, bang, right there. Well, indeed, Michael, I'm just not convinced that Adam got it right. I think there's a bit of confusion there, because Levison later refers to um, his Polish wife coming to stay with uh, Kwasowski in to- when he was in Tottenham in 1894. Well, that, so I think that, he was referring to the, the Lucy at the time because she was Polish also. I'm, I'm not he sure. He was, but uh, yeah, but I think I think this Polish wife thing is, is is a bit of a a bit of a red herring. I think Lucy Budersky was the Polish wife, but anyway, we'll. Uh, well, we still have to identify then the woman who was living with uh, Lucy Budersky, George Chap- uh, Klazowski, uh and quote the woman who disappeared. I think we have yeah. that problem right there. Yeah, indeed. A little more research, I think. <laughs> Okay, uh, does anyone else have any um, final um, questions or comments that you'd like to ask um, Mr. Gordon? And, and Michael, did we cover pretty much everything you would have liked to discuss today? Or? Uh, pretty much. I think we pretty much attacked uh, George <laughs> pretty definitively. We got down to pretty much everything I wanted to talk about. Uh, I think that uh, the one thing I did want to say that uh, taking a very hard look, there really is no fact or circumstantial piece of evidence which really definitively rules him out. And certainly when looked at objectively, there's much to said you know, for him holding the mantle of Jack the Ripper. There really is nothing even closer to ruling him out totally. As a police officer, some of them did seem to rule him in. So I think he's going to be a viable uh, suspect for a long time. Now, having said that, if somebody comes up with a with a body part at uh, maybe Albert Victor's place or Mr. Sickert or Tumble Idiot, now, then I'll, you know. No problem. We'll go with that. But I think right now uh, he is, as far as I'm concerned, uh, top dog. And are you working on any um, n- new uh, 
Ripper books at the moment, or I know you do have a, another a non-Ripper book coming out shortly. Um, yes. Um, um, we just finished publishing, uh, this is totally different, the Space Shuttle Program, How NASA Lost Its Way. That was published by McFarland and Company about uh, eight, ten months ago. And they have another book coming out in about uh, four or five weeks called The Infamous Burke and Hare, Serial Killers, Resurrections, 19th Century Edinburgh. So that should be coming up in just a, a few weeks. Oh, wonderful. And, that sounds good. Uh, it's, it was fun. And I'm glad I wasn't there. But uh, it, it was it was <laughs> right. Now, having said that, uh, it's not really a ripper book, but I'm almost finished uh, writing a book called Dark Tales from Scotland Yard in the Black Museum. And it's an historic look at Scotland Yard's Black Museum. It's early history. We talk about some of the murders in the 19th and 20th century, but we also close in on uh, some of the data of the rippers. We talk about uh, the new information that's coming up, and basically I'm asking, uh, where does the case go from now, from here? And this will be published by McFarland as well? Uh, actually, we don't have a publisher on that one yet. I'm going to let uh, McFarland have a shot. If anybody knows a publisher who wants to put it out in the bookstores, hey. First come, first serve. All right, and keep me informed uh, about the publishing um, of that of that one as well, if you would. Um, so we're gonna we'll, we'll provide links to McFarland's website um, in the show notes for the podcast, as well as their phone number. One, they have a one eight hundred number um, where you can order your books online or via the phone. So we'll have all that information. Um, now I have to I have to tell you an, an admission. When I first got into looking at uh, Jack and doing the, the whole thing, I figured I'd do a little investigation here, do a nice book, get down to two or three suspects. Uh, when I got down to one, I thought, okay, well, this is time to write Alias Jack. And I really didn't in- intend to write any more than that. But as you're doing more and more research, more and more bodies sort of drop out of the trees. That's what what, the, what uh, you know the Tim Torso murders. I ended up with three, then there was four, then there was five. We started off with two American murders, and then there was four, and then you know we go on and say, okay, let's do the poison murders. So yeah, I really only intended on draw, writing one book on on uh, Jack the Ripper. Do you believe, uh, unless something new is, is uh, comes out, that, that that the poison murders of Jack the Ripper it might be your final book on George Chapman? Unless um, something uh, critical comes up that uh, changes all aspects, I think that's probably going to be it. Now, having said that. Uh, if I get a chance to visit uh, England and say hello to you, some of you folks over there uh, and go back to uh, Bournemouth, where I lived for a while, and visit Poland, I would like to do some research early and perhaps maybe uh, do something on before he was possibly Jack. Other than that, I don't see anything new unless Scotland Yard stand up and says, hey, it was Jack. Uh, it was uh, George Chapman. All and right. it's time to make a movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, does uh, anyone else have any uh, final questions or comments? Before we call this a podcast, oh, everyone's it's good. been great fun. <laughs> yeah. It has, yes, it has. Yeah, enjoyed it. Well, I, I must say, thank everybody. It was really enjoyable for me too. Okay, well, and go, yes. go buy a book. Uh, yes, thank you very much, uh, our Michael Gordon, for being our guest today. My pleasure. And that was Rippercast, episode forty-four, the Chapman Ripper Theory, with our Michael Gordon. I want to again thank R. Michael Gordon for being our guest on the show today, as well as Steve Mateski, Ben Holm, Gareth Williams, and David Gates. Our podcast is available on the website www.casebook.org slash podcast, or in the iTunes Music Store's podcast section, keyword RipperCast, or Jack the Ripper. We'll be taking the next three weeks off, and so we probably won't record another RipperCast episode until the beginning of May. But I want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next month.